Hello again, Ars Technica readers. This is the second installment of a three-part interview with British astronomer Stephen Webb on the subject of Fermi's paradox. If you haven't yet heard part one, there's a link on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to it before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Stephen Webb. To remind you of where we are in the conversation, we left off just as Stephen and I were about to consider the second large set of plausible solutions to the paradox, which cluster around the notion that intelligent aliens are out there, but we just haven't been able to detect them yet. Which brings us to the second set of things, which is they exist, but we have yet to see or hear from them. And maybe as a transition into that, we could talk briefly about the SETI project, because we have actually been listening very, very closely. So the significance of us not hearing from them is greater than it would have been if we had been listening. Indeed. And, and we began by uh, talking about uh, the Drake equation. Well, Frank Drake wrote down that equation to give him some framework for thinking about this search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We're looking for signals. What, what, what do we want from a signal? You want it to go as fast as possible, your signal. So that implies light waves or gravitational waves. There's an economic argument as well, presumably. You want it to be easy to produce your signals. So that rules out gravitational waves because basically you need to shake a black hole vigorously to create <laughs> gravitational waves. And neutrinos are hard to modulate. But light waves, electromagnetic waves, dead easy to produce. They go at the fastest possible speed and they'll go where you want them to go. So, so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence primarily, since Frank Drake initiated this, has been the search for electromagnetic radiation from, uh, from possible extraterrestrial sources. That, yes, so far the result is silence. It's worth noting that SETI has kind of meant a couple different things over time. So it is an activity, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And as more and more energy gathered around this, and as, as Frank Drake gathered more believers and interested people, it became formalized into, for a period of time, it was actually U.S. government funded. And then at some point, the SETI organization became a private donor-backed organization. And so SETI is both an activity and it often refers to the SETI organization, uh, which has been home to Frank for a long period of time and has also been home to Jill Tarter, who ran the SETI organization for many years. And at sort of the peak of their funding, Paul Allen helped them build a very large array of telescopes. So it ebbs and flows with the funding and so forth. But this activity of SETI has been formal and fairly rigorous and methodical. I mean, thousands upon thousands of stars have been scanned on very, very, very wide sets of frequencies. And we have yet to pick up anything that seems to be in any way artificial in origin. All we've been hearing as we've been scanning these thousands of stars on these countless frequencies is just sort of static noise. Absolutely. But you have to listen to find out. Uh, and, and we are, and, and people have since Frank Drake initiated it. But it is very, very, very difficult. It's much more difficult than finding the proverbial needle in the haystack. You know, we have to have our telescope looking at the right time in precisely the right direction, at the right wavelength. It's a huge parameter space that we need to explore. 
And you, you can imagine a, a telescope looking at the correct star at the correct wavelength, but just not at the right time. Yeah. And so, so who knows? So we need to engage in SETI for a long time before we can really conclude that silence means silence. Yeah. And then there is the possibility that they are out there, but they're not broadcasting. Absolutely. I mean, the flip side of SETI is METI or active SETI. So it's a messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. And there's been some discussion um, amongst scientists, people like Stephen Hawking, about the wisdom of sending, broadcasting uh, a signal because it gives away your presence. I've heard it suggested that maybe actually everyone's too scared to broadcast. Uh, so maybe every, everyone's listening. No one's actually transmitting. There's a, a science fiction hypothesis called the Berserker Hypothesis that instead of seeking out new life and new civilization as uh, Star Trek would have it, it's seek out new life, new civilization and kill it. The idea being that if you kill all organic life out there, the galaxy is, is, is yours and all of that real estate. Maybe you don't want to, to take that risk. Yep. You, could it be that these 10,000 civilizations are, are all listening, waiting for the first move to come from someone else? And another possibility is they have fallen silent for completely benign reasons. Uh, looking at our own civilization as we get more and more technically advanced, we are broadcasting less and less, and we are broadcasting in a less and less leaky manner. Uh, you know, the way that TV and radio would broadcast many decades ago was, you know, blasting out electromagnetic waves in all directions. And now we're getting much more point to point with satellites. We're putting lots of things on fiber optic cables. And it's entirely possible that the noisy period of a civilization's history is only a few decades or maybe a century, which may well be the situation with us, correct? Absolutely. And I said perhaps um, civilizations would want to go out and explore. Maybe as virtual realities and virtual um, virtual life becomes more and more common, maybe our own civilization will find it actually much more stimulating, interesting, just to stay at home and explore those virtual realities as opposed to real realities. It seems plausible, uh, looking at the way we're heading, that we're much more yeah. interested in inner space than, than outer space. Particularly when you think of the expense of getting to another star. I mean, for the cost that it would take us in terms of energy, risk, you know, directing technological innovation, all that energy could go into, as you said, creating these virtual environments and things that are fascinating us more and more, particularly before Elon Musk came along and put the possibility of going to Mars on the near-term agenda. Certainly when I read the first version of your book, that seemed overwhelmingly plausible to me because... You know, it was 2000, I think, when I first read it. It's been 30 years since we've been to the moon. We haven't been anywhere close to the moon since then. You know, the year 2000, the internet's getting better and better. You could see virtual reality on the intermediate horizon. And it was very, very easy to contemplate that we would just become a very inward lurking species. So it seemed then very, very plausible that a highly advanced civilization would be perfectly content on a pretty small sliver of their planet where they could access experiences and wisdom and philosophies that we could never contemplate merely by exploration of the galaxy. That's right. And a lot of these things, obviously, are dependent upon 
the technology that uh, we're familiar with at a particular time. And it, it's, it's interesting, I think, that possible solutions to the Fermi paradox, uh, they develop over time as our own technology uh, develops. So that is one of my favorite parts of the book is they exist, but we have yet to see or hear from them. There are literally dozens of solutions there, but we keep running into what you call uh, cultural homogeneity, which is, yeah, well, you could see why we might just end up surfing the net if, you know, Elon's project doesn't work out and, you know, Oculus Rift 3.0 is really cool. We could see maybe even 5,000 of the 10,000 civilizations, but that, the, the presumption that 100% all aliens in all circumstances at all times will choose to surf the net or do any one of the dozens of things in that large section of the book, it really falls down there. It just takes one exception and the universe is full. And it's not full. Yeah. And it, it just needs one civilization to, to follow the logic that if we get out there first, the galaxy is ours. We win. Yeah, we, we win. Yeah. This is an aside. There is this one rather fun thing that's going on. Would you like to talk just briefly about Tabby Star and what the fun explanation is and what is perhaps more plausible? Yeah, it, it's... It's a real astronomical mystery. It's, it's, it's great fun. It's, it's the weirdest star in the galaxy. It's named Tabby Star after Tabitha Boyajian, I believe is how you pronounce it. And she's at Yale, right? Yeah, that's right. It's about 1,280 light years from Earth. What makes it uh, weird is, is that Kepler, this space telescope that's looking for these periodic dips in brightness, is seeing dips in brightness from Tabby's star, but they're not regular. They're small, they're frequent dips, but they're non-periodic. And there's been two large dips as well, um, about a 15% dimming and about a 22% dimming, I believe. And these dimmings are completely inconsistent with what we see from planets. So whatever is occluding Tabby's star on a periodic basis does not appear to be a planet. It appears to be very large. And it appears to be circling it or doing something at an erratic intervals. Yeah. I mean, if, if it were a, a Jupiter-sized object that was uh, transiting, you'd see a, a 1% dip in brightness. So we're seeing lots of these small uh, non-periodic dips in brightness. It's not a planet going around in a regular orbit mm -hmm. uh, because it's, it's, it's non-periodic. Then you've got these two huge dips that it's very mm. difficult to imagine being a planet. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear at all what's going on. I mean, stars just don't do this. Right. Um, you, you get variable stars, but they don't vary in this particular way. Uh, so what's going on? The one fun explanation is that somebody is building a Dyson sphere, just a great big sphere that will eventually be complete and opaque and capture 100% of the solar energy that this star throws off. That's something that people have talked about as being a plausible astroengineering project for many decades now, that could be one fun explanation is like, someone's building that sucker right now. It would be an incredible coincidence to be around just when someone's building one of these things so close. Right. But it's something that fits the observations. So people have come up with um, possible explanations, a swarm of comets, perhaps, or maybe a, a really big giant planet with a ring structure. None of them, none of these explanations somehow smell quite right. We, we don't know what's going on. 
I've seen a takedown of uh, a debunking of the comet explanation. It was pretty persuasive. Exactly, and and I think at present the the answer is we don't know what's going on. For anybody who's listening to this and finds this intriguing, Google it, Tabby's Star, and follow the story because it is ongoing. Yes, do. Um, I would urge your your, your listeners to. Um, to Google this and, and keep on top of the story because there, there will be other dips in brightness coming if yeah. the past is anything to go by. So again, there are literally dozens of solutions so they exist, but we have yet to see or hear from them. To get to that third category now, the, the least fun one for fans of science fiction, in many obvious ways, a very chilling explanation, but in more subtle ways, a very optimistic set of explanations, which is there are no intelligent aliens in the galaxy and perhaps even the universe. And that is, again, a collection of a couple dozen solutions. So talk us through the big picture on that, please. Well, we could just take uh, the great silence at, at face value and say it's a silent universe uh, because no one's out there. It's just us. Mm-hmm. So one idea um, based around this is, is the idea of, of hard steps or, or difficult steps. So, so maybe reaching the stage of, uh, of advanced intelligence, it, it's like the 110 meter hurdle race. You know, you've got to get over one hurdle. And then you've got to get over another hurdle and then another one in a certain order. You only need a few of those hard steps to make it unlikely that there'll be extraterrestrial intelligence. If it's a trillion to one shot, well, fine, there's a trillion planets. It's going to happen somewhere. And we're that one. (laughs) Um, and, And we're that one. We don't know, for example, how dead matter becomes live. We've got some ideas biologists have got some very good ideas, but we don't actually know. We do know, actually, that it happened really quickly on Earth, pretty much as soon as conditions were plausible for life to to be here on Earth. Life was here on Earth. And that's one of the things that adds a great deal of energy to Fermi's paradox, because when you look at the four billion-ish year history of Earth, it is right about the very time where it first became possible for life to arise that it happened here. We might have just gotten lucky in that case. That doesn't necessarily mean it's easy for non-life to arise from life, correct? That's correct. It might mean that it's easy, and that's what people have tended to think. But we can't say it for sure, because if it takes four billion years to evolve intelligence, we have to find ourselves on a planet where life started early. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that uh, this transition from dead matter to life is one of those hard steps. What we need to do is try and find life elsewhere. Yeah. You know, if we can find life on Mars or Enceladus, it's a, a moon of Saturn or on, on Titan, one of these places, if we can find life there and we can show that it uh, evolved independently or came into being independently of evolution of life on Earth, then we know pretty much we're going to find life everywhere. Yeah, that would be kind of the equivalent of, of the Kepler telescope suddenly realizing, wow, there are a lot of planets in the habitable zone. We thought there may be, we really had no way of knowing in the 1950s when Frank Drake was first thinking about this stuff. Now we have Kepler and we do have a way of knowing, but you're uh, precisely the same way. If we find completely independently evolved life on Mars with a different code of life, something that clearly independently arose, then that will suggest vehemently that life does spring up 
kind of wherever it can. And we've solved yet another of the seven terms of the Drake equation in a positive manner. Absolutely. We need to go out there and look. Um, we, have, we have to. Another one would be the transition. Another hard step, potentially, would be this transition from simple, single-celled life complex yes. multicellular life what we do know that uh, here on earth life really didn't do much for billions of years yeah it was just basic simple single-celled life and that was about three billion years correct we had yes. this almost a obscenely a suspiciously immediate emergence of simple life but once we had those single cell critters it was it was literally about three billion years of that and nothing else before anything more complex arose that, that's right and it was doing its own stuff it was living yep but it wasn't going to build a radio telescope Right. So maybe that's a difficult transition. Well, it certainly is from our experience. If it took three billion years, it's got to be highly improbable that it will happen on any given day. The, the evidence that we have from our own history certainly seems to show that that is a giant, difficult, improbable step that takes lots of time. Indeed. And, and, and there are other possible uh, difficult steps that people uh, can come up with. So the development of sexual reproduction or the development of tool using animals with big brains and all that sort of stuff. And you don't need many of those hard steps yeah. to make intelligent, uh, advanced civilizations out there to be, to be rare. Yeah. The possible chilling thing here is that we don't want to find multicellular life on Mars or Enceladus or, or Titan, because that would imply that the hard steps are to come, actually, that a hard step lies in front of us. Yeah. If we find life elsewhere, it sort of implies that those things that we thought were hard are actually easy. Yep. If they don't exist, if we're in category three and they don't exist, there is something that is universally exterminating, either behind or ahead of us. And if it's behind us, well, thank goodness we got to multicellular life. Nobody else got that far. And now we got a free run. But if multicellular life kind of arises everywhere, that suggests that perhaps the hard thing is learning to live with nuclear weapons or learning to live with synthetic biology or nanotechnology could be the thing that no civilization gets past. And if that's the case, we're probably doomed because what have we got that the other many thousands that went before us didn't have? You've got to go with the odds and it, it wouldn't look so good. And it doesn't look so good, frankly, does it, when you look at the political situation at, at present? But yeah, let's not be let, 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 let's not be down. Yes. Let's be optimistic. The other set of solutions in this broader category, and I think you had about a dozen difficult steps, and we briefly touched on a couple of them, and there are many others, is the so-called rare earth hypothesis or rare earth argument. Uh, do you care to describe that briefly and talk a little bit about some of the solutions that live under that tent? Okay, so, so rare earth uh, as an idea came about from uh, Peter Ward and, and, and Don Brownlee, I believe they're at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you can think of it as essentially adding other factors into the Drake equation. It might be that you need a planet with a, a large moon. So earth is actually, a, you can consider as, as a double planet uh, because we have, compared to the size of the earth, we have a large moon. And the moon certainly seems to play a role in, in, in stabilizing Earth's axial tilt and, and in giving us essentially good weather. Good stable weather. Good stable weather. You can imagine uh, a climate that goes between very, very hot 
very, very cold. And that's the sort of uh, rapid climate change that you would get if you don't have a stabilizing moon uh, up there. Which might be a very exotic thing because we're the only double planet system in our solar system. So we're aware of several other planets. None of them have a relatively gigantic moon. So that does seem to be pretty scarce and it may be incredibly scarce for all we know. Well, the, th- the thing about it is that the moon was created by uh, a collision and it seems to have hit a sweet spot. It, it was object the size of, of Earth, smashed in, uh, Mars, sorry, smashed into Earth and, uh, and, and, and the moon w- was the result. So if that collision, the details of the collision was slightly different, we'd have had uh, maybe a slightly bigger moon or the smaller moon, and the moon seems to be just the right size for, for stabilizing various um, activities over a billion, billions of years, period. That starts becoming explanatory, because if this kind of precisely correct collision resulted in this very unusually stable planetary system, which resulted in billions of years with fairly stable temperatures, and we needed those billions of years in the vat to get from single cellular to multicellular. It is entirely possible that without this perfect configuration of moon, you would not have had that stability. That's right. If it's a one in trillion event, we have a trillion planets, it's going to happen somewhere. Another uh, idea is that, quite different idea, is just Earth's been lucky in terms of dodging the various disasters that could have hit it. There hasn't been uh, a very nearby supernova that could have caused a problem. Uh, We haven't been in the firing line of a gamma ray burster. Tell me if I got this wrong. If a supernova were to occur within roughly a light year of your planet, it would pretty much sterilize the planet. It's that order, yeah. We're fine because there's no star other than our own within a light year of us. But if you're living in the galactic core, which is actually where most stars are, they're close enough together that supernovas being as frequent as they are would tend to sterilize a very, very high percentage of those solar systems. And so a supernova going off during the four-ish billion year period that at least it took life to arise on Earth, most of the stars in the Milky Way are probably close enough to enough other stars that they would have been knocked out. And then this gamma ray burster thing is just crazy. A gamma ray burster could almost sterilize an entire galaxy. Am I right? Sure. It, it, it's, uh, it's funny you should mention that, actually, because just today, um, on the day of this interview, astronomers have released uh, the first images uh, from a, a, a gamma ray burst explosion. But the explosion happened so far away, it took 10 billion years for the light to reach us. And that's how bright these things are. They, they happen across the universe, but potentially they're so bright you can see them with the na- naked eye. They're incredibly, incredibly violent events. And imagine all the uh, energy that the sun will generate in its entire lifetime, and you release that in a few seconds. I mean, that's how powerful these gamma ray bursts are, and they just light up the universe. And, and, and certainly, they, they seem to be directed so... If you're outside of a cone of radiation, you'd be okay. Yeah. But if if you're in the cone, it's going to make toast of your, your planet. But there seems to be uh, one type of burst is, is created when you have a rapidly spinning, very high mass star, and mm. it collapses in to form a black hole. 
mm-hmm. and it spews out uh, huge amounts of, of radiation. And the other event seems to be when you have two neutron stars uh, orbiting one another and then crashing in, colliding uh, in, into one another again, generating huge amounts of, of energy. Now, they happen randomly, um, but but roughly you know, one a day somewhere in the universe. We're quite fortunate that one hasn't happened in our galaxy because that would turn the lights out in a very, very big chunk of the galaxy. And if it happens once a day and our planet is four billion years old, that is over a trillion days. At some point, the odds are not at all small that a gamma ray burst would have gone off in our galaxy. And had that happened and had we been in the radiation cone, we just, our entire experiment would have been ceased. And so you add that to the fact that we haven't been around a supernova and around the dozen-ish other terms that you talk about in Rare Earth, and you might, through those steps or through the difficult steps, come to the conclusion that we're probably the only ones who have squeaked through. It's, it's an argument, yeah. Yep, it's an argument. So let's talk about your argument. You have probably spent as much time thinking about solutions to Fermi's paradox as anybody. What is your solution? What do you find most satisfying when you think about all 75 possibilities? Well, I, I don't find it satisfying. I mean, my preferred solution would be the solution that I, I guess most SETI astronomers would go along with, which is that we share the galaxy with lots of wonderful aliens, and it's just a matter of time before we discover them. And then I'd be living in the science fiction universe of my childhood, which would be great. I'd I'd love that. I think the solution that is going to turn out to be true, we might find it difficult to prove it, but I think what will turn out to be true is that we are alone. Hmm. And the, the more I think about it, the more I find it slightly strange that we even think that when we look out in the universe, we're going to find species that are well, let's look at it. We, they're going to have to be social creatures. You know, individuals won't be communicating over interstellar distances. So we're, we're looking for social creatures. We're looking for creatures with good manipulative abilities because they're going to have to build a spaceship or build a, a radio telescope. Uh, they're going to inevitably, therefore, have to possess intelligence they're going to have to possess a complex grammar so that they can communicate uh, these complex issues with each other. They're going to have to understand math and, and science. And all of these things, these are all characteristics that define us, you know, mm-hmm. that define our species. So why should we find those characteristics out there when we don't actually find them anywhere else here on Earth? I mean, the closest would have been the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. None of those characteristics did them any good. They, they, they died out. We are just one of a huge number of twigs on a, a vast branch, uh, a vast bush of, of uh, life. And, and evolution has created some incredible, beautiful organisms, exquisitely fine-tuned to living the life that they live. And we happen to, to be one of those very rare very exotic, very wonderful outcomes of evolution. What's interesting about that to me is I've historically and instinctively find that to be a depressing possibility. When I first read Rare Earth, about the same time I read your book for the first time, it blew my mind because I think the arguments in it are very, very powerful. But instinctively, I do not want to believe in them because I, like you, love the idea of that densely populated galaxy. So it feels depressing 
But the thing about it that is actually optimistic gets back to where does that great filter exist? If, in fact, nothing is out there, is the great filter behind us or in front of us? And the idea that we're the only critters like us to ever arise in our galaxy actually suggests that that filter is behind us. And that actually raises the prospect significantly that we will get through our nuclear adolescence and our synthetic biology post-adolescence and our nanotechnology post-adolescence without destroying ourselves. It also gives us a, a, a very powerful sense of responsibility, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think you've encapsulated it perfectly, Rob, that it does at first glance seem to be a depressing thought that it's just us. But it isn't without its optimism because we could be that civilization that goes out there, does the exploration, finds out what there is. And whether it's us or our descendants, mm -hmm. might be some sort of hybrid between humanity and, and machines, who knows what it is. But you know, if, if we um, understand almost the huge responsibility that we have um, to protect uh, our planet, our um, civilization, just to protect this wonderful gift of intelligence and consciousness. Um, I, I think if we can come to that realization, then, um, then a, a, a consideration of the Fermi paradox is actually quite important. Now, before we close, I want to touch on two things briefly. One thing that is kind of comparably astonishing when one wraps one's head around it, which is what we mentioned briefly at the top, the anthropic coincidences. We've talked about rare earth. The anthropic coincidences are almost like rare universe. It seems when one starts delving into the physics of the universe's creations and the way that certain variables are set, that the existence of a universe that could bear life is extravagantly improbable. I mean, a consideration of anthropic coincidence, it, it, it's like a bad rash for a physicist. You, you, you try and ignore it. You try and ignore them. <laughs> but you have to keep coming back and, and scratching at them. So the, the, the problem is we've got some incredibly good theories of physics, but they contain parameters, okay? And, and what physicists do is observe those parameters and then plug them into the theory. The thing is, though, that the, the theories would work just as well with any other value for these constants, but the resulting outcomes would be very different. For instance, one of the um, parameters would be the strength of the nuclear force. And you can ask, well, what would happen um, if the strength of the nuclear force were just maybe a couple of percent bigger? What would the universe look like? Well, it would be very different. It, hydrogen would have been consumed very, very quickly after the Big Bang, and stars like our sun wouldn't now exist. Or if it were you know, a few percent weaker then fusion might not take place at all in the way it does in the center of the sun. So the stars uh, that we think are important for the existence of life wouldn't exist. Uh, right. Another example is cosmological constant. Now, in the, the units in which physicists like to express these things, the cosmological constant is incredibly tiny, fine-tuned. It's about 10 to the minus 120. It's an odd point, odd, 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 odd. 120 zeros, and then a one. In any sane world, we'd say that that was zero. Uh, but it isn't zero. It's tiny, but it's non-zero. And that's impacting on the uh, expansion of the universe. 
Now you can ask yourself, what would happen if it were just fractionally bigger? And again, the universe would be very, very different because galaxies wouldn't form. So if you look at these, these parameters that aren't defined by theory, it's something that we measure and put into our theories, it, it, it turns out that they have to, these parameters have to lie within certain small ranges. And there's a lot of these variables, any one of which, and correct me if I'm wrong, really there's no reason it had to be exactly what it is. After the Big Bang, these variables were essentially set. As far as we can tell, they were set kind of at random. And it's about a dozen, right? That There's something in that neighborhood? It, it would depend on who you, you speak to. It could be as, as few as six. It could be as many as 30. So a dozen is a reasonable estimate. Most of them could have been anything, and all of them seem immaculately tuned to permit things like stars and galaxies and therefore us to exist. And when you run the numbers on them, I think Lee Smolin is one person who's done this, and he came up with a mind-bending estimate of the radical improbability of everything being dialed in just so by chance. And so just as we have a rare Earth, the universe that could support any life, really, as far as we can think of it, just seems radically improbable. It's like somebody set these dials just so. Yeah, I mean, Smolin came up with a figure of um, a chance of one in 10 to the power 229 of just randomly choosing these these parameters. So that's a one followed by 229 zeros it's a massive 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 number it is far more than far more than the number of subatomic particles in the observable universe correct something like that N number of particles in the uh, observable universe is of the order of 10 to the 80 so 10 to the power 229 is is hugely 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 more than that and if you believe those sorts of odds come up well you know, buy a lottery ticket it's not going to happen by chance it, it seems to be some sort of observation here that calls out for some sort of, of explanation. Question is, what's the explanation? Did somebody set up the universe very carefully? Because it's just as unlikely that, I don't know, a Honda Civic would just sort of appear <laughs> from the random collision of atoms. This seems improbable on that level. Or are there lots and lots and lots and lots of universes and we naturally find ourselves in one that can support us because we will not find ourselves in one that cannot. Exactly. So, so, so that's why uh, it, it's a little bit of, of an awkward conversation sometimes to have um, because clearly with a number like 10 to the 229, um, some people will say, well, obviously this is evidence for intelligent design by a creator. It doesn't necessarily actually, I suppose, have to be um, some sort of uh, religious overtone to that. You could imagine a sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence, I guess, being the creator. Or indeed that it's a fake universe and it's just one of these VR simulations. We, we touched on that before. But another uh, possibility um, that you alluded to is this idea of the multiverse. I mean, string theory gives us this idea of there being 10 to the 500 possible different universes that each work according to string theory. And each of those universes would have different parameters. In some, the cosmological constant would be huge. 
in others the number of dimensions would be would be different electromagnetism would be stronger in some strong nuclear force would be weaker in others everything is, is going to happen in 10 to the 500 different universes and the anthropic principle would say well we have to find ourselves in one where life is possible we can't find ourselves in one where life is impossible by definition yep it's a slightly slightly disappointing uh, view i think because it sort of rules out uh, the possibility of a deeper understanding we are where we are just because we happen to be in one of those universes in this vast string landscape string theory landscape but it might be the best explanation that we get for this anthropic coincidence and it does make the improbability work because if you have 10 to the 500 things something as rare as 10 to the 200 and something as thing will happen just in vast 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 number of times it's no longer even though it is a rare possibility it is no longer at all rare in gross numbers so that is a that that is a major part of humanity's scientific agenda but for now these are big big questions that we don't have anywhere close to certainty about so ars technica listeners here we conclude the second installment of my interview with stephen webb Part three is coming tomorrow, which will open by discussing the exciting stuff that's coming soon in the search for extraterrestrial life and in astronomy in general. An amazing set of telescopes, other hardware, probes, and projects are in the pipeline. As mentioned before, if you can't wait to hear the rest of the interview, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after-on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes to find this one, which originally ran on September 26th of last year. You'll also find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy, government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me tomorrow here on ours. (laughs) 